With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today on the AgNet News Hour. Coming up later, how cost studies provide potential for streamlining operational costs, and why the Farm Bureau says global transit choke points are threatening U.S. ag exports. But our top story today. The federal milk marketing order hearing is now finished, and the USDA is considering more than 12,000 pages of testimony as it formulates its plan for FMMO modernization. The National Milk Producers Federation continues to do what it can to ensure that proposal best reflects the interest of dairy farmers and their cooperatives. Vice President for Economic Policy and Market Research, Dr. Peter Vitaliano. We feel that we made, we presented a very good hearing record. Half the room was full of basically USDA-related people. We watched them closely for their body language and other things, although we're under ex parte, as you know, where communications between USDA and the industry are very limited just to procedural things. Still, he says he's comfortable that members will get a decision that they're able to, quote, live with. But nobody, he says, is going to get everything they want. That's pretty clear. USDA is going to give each party, each of the, particularly each of the major parties, uh, a little something. We will be, the, the final result will be a market improvement over what we have now. Federal order pricing formulas, which is the only thing this whole hearing was about, uh, have basically uh, maintained, by and large, a, a fixed structure of the dairy industry. And over the 25 years, years or so that those formulas have been in effect, the industry has changed considerably. The formulas are now increasingly out of step with what the industry looks like. Our proposals are to bring it back up to uh, bring those formulas up to match where the industry is now and where it will be going forward. The National Milk Producers Federation says successful modernization must respect the entire industry and work for farmers. A new component to the American Climate Corps is now taking applications for training in various natural resources conservation efforts. Rod Bain reports. It is the latest effort within the White House-led American Climate Corps. USDA, in partnership with AmeriCorps, the Corps' network, and the National Association of Conservation Districts, are establishing a new Working Lands Climate Corps. This is on top of the Forest Service Climate Corps that was announced in December. Deputy Agriculture Secretary Social Torres Small in a call with reporters Monday. This new branch of the Climate Corps will provide at least 100 young Americans service opportunities. White House National Climate Advisor Alex this half-breaking initiative is an incredibly important way to engage the talents of more and more folks in what is the existential challenge of our lifetime. Organizations wishing to participate have until March 8th to submit applications via www.cornetwork, all one word, .org WLCC. The web address also provides information on upcoming webinars February 15th and 20th. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. A new report says U.S. agricultural export values and import values both declined in calendar year 2023. Here's Gary Crawford. We now have complete ag trade numbers for calendar year 2023 and during that year. The overarching theme, I think, has been the easing of inflation, the lowering of unit values. Unit values, in other words, lower commodity prices, which reversed the growth in U.S. ag product imports and further cut U.S. exports. This from USDA economist Bart Kenner. Here's how the year turned out. 
Agricultural exports for calendar year 2023 are $174.9 billion. That's down 11% from the previous year. And agricultural imports are $194.9 billion, down 2%. That gave us an ag trade deficit of about $20 billion, up from just under $2.5 billion in calendar year 2022. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And Bart Kinner, the USDA economist, gives us a list of some U.S. high-value products which saw exports increasing in calendar year 2023. Animal feeds and oil meal are up 6% from last year at $18 billion. Prepared and preserved vegetables were up 10% from last year at $5.4 billion. Fresh fruits were up 5% from last year at $4.3 billion. Vegetables and their products overall were up 6% from last year at $8.1 billion. Distilled spirits were up 8% at $2.2 billion. So those are some of the highs. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. In today's national spotlight, a dairy checkoff partnership is putting hot chocolate milk into the hands of some students during a pilot with a leading school food service company. Here's Michael Clements. National Dairy Council and Chartwell's K-12, which serves more than 2 million meals daily at 700 U.S. school districts, have launched the Hot Chocolate Milk Program in 58 schools. Lisa Hatch, Vice President of Business Development for National Dairy Council, says the pilot, which will run through the end of the school year, features real chocolate milk served hot during breakfast and lunch. There's this interesting shift happening with young people right now, and especially when it comes to their attitude about healthy eating. So as it turns out, chocolate milk or hot chocolate really hits the It's not just a treat that kids really love, but it also meets the healthy beverage guidelines set by schools. National Dairy Council began working with Chartwell's K-12 last year on a dairy-based smoothie program, which is available to all Chartwell's schools following a successful pilot. We have a really proven track record with Chartwell's. In 2023-24, we partnered with them and launched a smoothie program in about 130 of their schools, which was really well received and drove significant dairy and meal participation across the board. The smoothie program success led to a what's the next big thing discussion between the partners. They focused on hot chocolate, which had a global market size valued at $3.8 billion in 2022 and is expected to grow by $5.77 billion by 2030. So what we're seeing so far is really positive. Kids are very excited. Again, this is anecdotal at this point, but what we're hearing is it's so successful in some situations that it's a little bit too good because every kid wants to take it and really they're drinking it down to the last drop, which is great to see. For more information about the dairy checkoff, visit www.usdairy.com slash four farmers. Michael Clements reporting. More than 370 projects across U.S. states and territories are funded as part of a USDA program focused on plant pest and disease defense. Here's Rod Bain with more. Investments in plant pest and disease protection, as announced by Agriculture Undersecretary Jenny Moffitt this week when visiting state agriculture directors and commissioners in Washington, D.C. We're announcing $70 million for 374 projects in all 50 states. Plus the District of Columbia, Guam, the Northern Mariana Islands, and Puerto Rico. 
Among the gamut of projects and protection methods funded under what is called the Plant Protection Act Section 7721 program. This is about prevention of plant pests and diseases. This is about trapping. This is about investment in detector dog teams. This is about making sure that we're doing surveillance and we've got the infrastructure in place for pest detection. Most projects are managed under USDA's Plant Pest and Disease Management and Disaster Prevention Program, while the remainder are are supported under the National Clear Plant Network. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. That's today's National Spotlight. Now here's Will Jordan with the Livestock Report. In today's Livestock News, though the largest portion of funding goes to nutrition programs, when agriculture discusses the Farm Bill, row crops are often the topic. Yet reference prices and other subsidies are not necessarily the focus of animal agriculture when it comes to farm bill allocations. To learn more, I visit with Ethan Lane, National Cattlemen's Beef Association Vice President of Government Affairs. Well, you know, we occupy a very different role in that in that world, right? We don't have in animal agriculture, other than dairy, those um, subsidy programs that we see in other segments of agriculture. That changes, I think, how we engage in the farm bill. That changes our priorities when we get into that farm bill process. Um, you know, the, the row crop folks are very focused on those reference prices. They're very focused on some of those kind of big ticket items for them. I think for the livestock community, we're, we're one foot into kind of these are the things we would like out of this bill. And the other foot is these are the things that could be very harmful in a farm bill, right? And there's just as much fear of bad policy in a farm bill as there is optimism about some great new program uh, that's going to be the, the linchpin of salvation for producers into the next generation. Um, so, yeah, you know, you fine-tune existing programs. You work on more funding for that FMD vaccine bank to make sure that when we have an FMD outbreak in the U.S., we're ready for it, right, and we're prepared. Um, you, you work on those voluntary conservation programs. I think there's uh, quite a bit of wrangling left to do on that $20 billion in IRA funding and how it gets to the ground through that bill. You know, the, 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 the folks that put that together on the Dem side of the aisle feel very much like it's a loss if that's plucked up and, and set back down in the baseline of the farm bill. Even though the money would effectively end up in the same place, it's a little bit of kind of like, no, we did that, and you're not going to redo it here. Um, but there's also some really good arguments for the fact that the math makes a lot more sense if you deploy it through you know, the conventional uh, uh, train. So you know, we're focused on that kind of stuff in the farm bill um, and spending a lot of our time on the radical animal rights groups that have decided this is, their, this is going to be where they take their stand. They very much want to transform America's food system in this bill. They don't believe animal agriculture should have a role. Um, these are people that don't believe you should own pets for the most part, right? I mean, these are these are not normal Americans. These are crazy people, and they are incredibly well-funded. They have a ton of Silicon Valley money. Um, we know HSUS, ASPCA, and these groups are, are making several hundred million dollars a year each um, with these heart-wrenching commercials about dogs and, you know, Sarah McLaughlin and the whole thing. They're not giving any of that money to animal shelters. Less than 2% of that money is going to animal shelters. They're spending all that to impact the farm bill. So... That's a lot of the reason that it's, it's sort of freeing in some aspects to not be asking for tons and tons of money from that farm bill process. And instead, we can use some of that political capital to say, you have got to craft this bill in a way that is effective for farmers and ranchers, that delivers the nutrition assistance that people in need uh, need out of this program, and that's it, right? And you draw the line there, and we are not entertaining, you know, what direct action everywhere or whoever else wants to do to, you know, have us all eating, you know, dirt and, and sticks, 
10 years from now. So um, that's kind of how, how we approach that. And I think most of livestock is in that space. Um, one of the other protein groups at the beginning of this process, it's my favorite story about this farm bill process. We were in a meeting in the Capitol with House Republican leadership on the farm bill. And they had asked everyone on the table, there's 30 of us around the table, Farm Bureau and everybody else. And they said, what's your biggest priority in the farm bill? And I, will, I won't name the group, but they stood up and they said, introduced themselves. And they said, our biggest priority in this farm bill is not to be mentioned in this farm bill. Um, and I think that that, you know, that tone from livestock really does represent kind of our larger perspective. Um, yeah, we need a little bit of stuff in here, but the, for the most part, leave us out of it. I'm Will Jordan for Agnet West. Don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you just want to catch the news at a different time, you can subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search for the Agnet News Hour on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour, and it is available on both Android and Apple devices. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Ours report, but first, more of the day's agriculture news. And with today's Agnet West headlines, here's Brian German. The latest report on sample costs to produce and harvest fresh market raspberries can provide growers with valuable insight. The report itself can be found at coststudies.ucdavis.edu, and UC Cooperative Extension Farm Advisor for Strawberries and Caneberries, Mark Bolda, described the kind of tool these types of cost studies can be. I've never had anybody say, oh, gosh, you know, have a hallelujah moment where they say they're not going to farm it. But maybe people can see, again, I don't know what's on growers' minds when they're looking at this, and it has been a lot of growers. Maybe they're seeing or looking for where they could make adjustments to make it more profitable. I mean, everything's broken down. We have a lot of tables in the back, I think 12 different tables itemizing all the costs. So maybe there's maybe they see something where they could save, save on costs. Obviously, labor is going to cost what it costs, but maybe there's some other areas where they could adjust to kind of eke out a little bit better profit out of that. A new partnership has been announced aimed at streamlining farmers' access to agronomic recommendations from Corteva AgriScience through the John Deere Operations Center. The partnership combines John Deere's digital capabilities and intelligent farm equipment with Corteva's agricultural experience aiming to provide precise, customized agronomic insight. The collaboration targets delivery to equipment via John Deere Precision Ag Technology, Pioneer Sales Representatives for agronomic support, and directly to farmers for enhanced productivity and sustainability. The focus of the partnership is to simplify value extraction through data-driven scientific recommendations tailored to each farm. The partnership aims to set a new industry standard integrating Corteva's cutting-edge science with John Deere's technology stack. The initiative will commence pilot programs in the spring across the U.S., extending to Canada in the future. American Farm Bureau Federation economist Betty Resnick points out that global transit choke points are threatening U.S. ag exports, impacting shipping costs, and potentially affecting market prices and farm profitability. In an article from Michigan Farm Bureau, Resnick highlighted two significant events that are contributing to the issue. A persistent drought in South America reducing water levels in the Panama Canal and disruptions to Red Sea shipping related to the Israel-Gaza conflict. The Panama Canal is crucial for U.S. agriculture, with 72% of its cargo connected to the U.S., including a substantial portion of ag exports. The drought has already led to a 33% reduction in canal transits, causing concerns about shipping delays and increased costs. Simultaneously, attacks in the Red Sea are escalating, affecting 15% of global maritime trade and pushing shipping costs higher. March 22nd is the deadline to apply for the Conservation Stewardship Program from USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service. 
Assistant State Conservationist with NRCS, Brandon Bates said it's a great time to sign up thanks to historic funding support for the program. We're in a great spot right now when it comes to conservation the past couple of years and also looking at the next three years with IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. It has jump-started our program and pretty much almost doubled the amount of money we have available. So the opportunity is there. I know when the IRA first came out, it was talked about a generational opportunity for conservation and farming. And of course, we're just trying to be part of it. And with this influx of new money, of course, we're trying to make sure we get the word out and hopefully increase our numbers in both obligation and application numbers. A Produce Safety Alliance grower training course is coming up at the end of the month. The virtual interactive training course will cover seven modules and will take place February 28th and 29th. Growers and others interested in learning about the Food Safety Modernization Act Produce Safety Rule, Good Agricultural Practices, and Co-Management of Natural Resources and Food Safety are encouraged to attend. Topics that will be covered include an introduction to produce safety, worker health hygiene and training, soil amendments, wildlife, domesticated animals and land use, agricultural water, post-harvest handling and sanitation, and how to develop a farm food safety plan. Participants will be eligible for a certificate from the Association of Food and Drug Officials after attending the entire training course. Registrations due by February 15th and more information is available on the upcoming events page at agnetwest.com. West Region sales agronomist for AgroLiquid Abe Isaac joins us today to talk about the importance of potassium and nitrogen from harvest to fruit set. Post-harvest fertilizer applications on permanent plantings, and, and that could be stone fruit, almonds, uh, pistachios, and even citrus, even though citrus is an evergreen crop. But that is one of the most important times to set that next year's crop up by putting that in there, putting potassium and phosphorus down in the fall you're helping that plant build up carbohydrates and convert that into energy for the tree goes dormant and then it comes back out of it in the spring. That energy is there in that plant because if the soils are going to be cold, they're going to be usually going to be wet and the roots aren't really pulling a lot of nutrients out of the soil just yet. So what has stored up? One of the things that we're having this year in California specifically is we have not had a lot of chill hours. We had a pretty warm winter. So what I've seen in the past in my experience is those that did the post-harvest, their trees tend to come out of, out of a warm winter much better than a guy that has starved his trees with that post-harvest by not putting that application on. And that doesn't mean that you're out of luck. If you have not done that post-harvest and it's not set up that way, start early and put a good soluble form of potassium, phosphorus, and nitrogen down. And that the roots will pick it up, but also foliar spray when you go through the fungicides and you're making trips through there, put some nutrition in there and you can get caught up a little bit and help alleviate that because that tree didn't go to sleep quite as well as we'd like. So what's it going to do? It's going to burn up some of those carbohydrates. It's going to use some of those things that it stored to survive the winter because it's not in a deep enough sleep, if you will. So we need to make sure that we hit that better this spring. And even if you did get post-harvest down, keep an eye on those things. You might put a good foliar application in there just to be on the safe side. And that's what I would do. Nitrogen specifically, if you're talking about almond trees and pistachio trees and things like that, when you put that nitrogen down there and if you put, let's say you put down 50 units of nitrogen, a lot of that is gonna be wasted because the, the tree is taking nutrients and other things that are at the top of the tree and pulling it back down and storing it in the roots into the trunk of that tree. And so you're trying to swim 
upstream with nitrogen. Potassium in, uh, flows up and down the tree at the same time, and so does and phosphorus will go up, and it goes up into the plant and is stored better than nitrogen. So if a guy's going to do a post harvest in the fall, yeah, put a little bit of nitrogen down. But I would spend more of my money and my and my efforts into uh, traces and uh, your potassium and phosphorus applications to build that up. Uh, because nitrogen is readily available and it's easy to get caught up with that if you find yourself in a little bit of a deficient situation. I'm Brian German for AgNet West Radio Network. I'm at CattleCon 2024 and I have with me Julia Herman. And Julie, Julia, I know you work for NCBA. Tell us a little bit about what you do for the organization. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I, my name is Julia Herman, and I am the beef cattle specialist veterinarian for the producer education team here at NCBA. And so I lead education development for a lot of our producer education programs, specifically the beef quality assurance program. And uh, I also am in charge with veterinary outreach for the team. So I'm out there uh, with multiple cattle veterinarian organizations, state ve- uh, veterinary medical associations, working to get our resources into the hands of veterinarians to use as training tools for our producers across the country. Well, let's talk about uh, some of the um, things that you work on. Uh, I know biosecurity has been a, a biggie. Uh, how, how do things stand with that uh, since we talked last year, actually? Yeah, I think biosecurity, uh, it's something that producers can build on from year to year, and that's what BQA has been doing with our biosecurity platform. We introduced the daily biosecurity plan more than a year ago. We're really trying to encourage producers to still work with their veterinarians and their resource team, so maybe their extension specialists, their nutritionists, work with them to uh, build a biosecurity plan for their operation, recognize those risks, and see what they can do to, uh, you know, prepare for something in the future. The step above that is we, um, NCBA received a grant from uh, USDA, the National Animal Disease Preparedness and Response Program, to improve the secure beef supply plan. And so this is that enhanced biosecurity plan that is focused on preparing producers to work during a foot and mouth disease outbreak if it, if it were to occur in the U.S. And so that has been a really big project that we're working on, um, building new resources to make the, make the website more usable and user-friendly for producers and veterinarians. We're also adding a lot of transporter-specific biosecurity to that. And so a lot of the resources uh, that we are building for the Secure Beef Supply Plan are also going to be used in the BQA plan. So we're really trying to look at the entire cattle industry and see where uh, these educational resources can be best used and um, try to build some practical tips for people. So when you uh, do this with the materials or resources that you make available, uh, I think we were talking about uh, converting some of this into Spanish for for people. Uh, Just ways to help more people be able to use these resources. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, the cattle industry is really diverse. We, I think we all recognize that from the types of operations, the types of producers, and even and the types of employees that we have. And there are a lot of uh, pr- 
a lot of employees on our cattle operations where English is not their first language. And so um, BQA started with, uh, we do have some online modules that are in Spanish right now, uh, but we're trying to expand that. And so um, we have a couple of ways that we're doing that. Um, one, we've hired somebody on our team who is bilingual, who is going to be able to help with some of that translating and help with the, some of those trainings. So we're really excited to have uh, Cindy, uh, Cindy on our team. The other thing that we've done is we have received another grant through USDA National Institute for Food and Ag. It's an educational grant through the Veterinary Services Program. And we are using that to uh, translate all of our BQA resources into Spanish. Um, so it's going to be in written form, but we're also going to, we're trying to do a multimedia approach. And so we're going to do uh, some video training for anything from vaccinating cattle to how you handle cattle. They're going to be in both English and Spanish. So really great training tools for our rural veterinarians and our rural producers. So they're training their employees appropriately, improving human safety and improving care for our cattle eventually. So we're really excited about that. What else are you working on that we didn't touch on here or that you might want to bring up uh, and let folks know that NCBA is doing in this area? The neat thing that BQA has been doing is really looking holistically at the entire way that we care for cattle. So uh, we're trying to make sure that um, all of our recommendations are uh, taking care of anything from nutrition to animal health to biosecurity. Um, we, we, do, we are updating our BQA manual right now, and so that will be coming out in the next year or two. Um, and I think uh, producers are going to be really impressed with how we've really amped up our guidelines and uh, some of the resources that we're providing within the manual so that they can better better their operations and better what they're doing for their cattle. Julia, thank you very much for your time here. And we are at CattleCon 2024. I'm Chuck Zimmerman reporting. The USDA is giving a boost to the food supply chain. That's coming up on this line of ours. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack announced that the USDA has awarded more than $270 million to date through the cooperative agreements with State Departments of Agriculture to build resilience across the middle of the food supply chain and strengthen local and regional food systems. The funding is awarded through the Resilient Food Systems Infrastructure Program. Vilsack announced Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, Kentucky, Louisiana, Utah, and West Virginia have now opened their requests for applications for the program, joining the 28 other states that are already offering grant funding for projects that support supply chain infrastructure. Vilsack says these unprecedented investments into our nation's supply chain infrastructure will not only benefit consumers by ensuring they have dependable access to fresh and locally produced food, but the investments will also benefit producers and rural communities by providing more and better markets for small and medium-sized producers. This is the Agnet News Hour. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. Brian German has today's featured interview. We're joined by Megan Lawston this morning, marketing manager for the International Agri Center in Tulare, and we're gearing up for another year of World Ag Expo, which gets kicked off this morning. And so, Megan, just to start out here, uh, what can people expect to enjoy from this year's event? We're really excited for the 57th Annual World Ag Expo. We are expecting over 1,200 exhibitors, so we are really excited to showcase all the latest and greatest in innovation, education, and technology at World Ag Expo. And so with today being the first day of the event, uh, what are the hours of this year's expo and uh, maybe some of the points of interest that people will want to uh, check out at all the different pavilions and, and seminars? 
The show is open Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, Tuesday and Wednesday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., and Thursday from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. We have um, the same pavilions we've had the last few years. We have our uh, pavilion A and B. We also have our Corteva building, which is going to be kind of our general ag building, and we have our Farm Credit Dairy Center, which is where you're going to find um, a lot of those dairy-focused areas. Um, we also have a WW Pavilion, which is something that we started the past few years. Um, that's going to be our livestock um, pavilion. So it's a really cool thing we added. We have um, live animals in there. Something new we're doing this year is we have a live cattle auction at 3 p.m. on Wednesday. So if you've never seen a live cattle auction or that's something you want to check out, please head out to that WW Pavilion on Wednesday. And we have things happening all over the ground. So something new we're seeing this year is a lot of movement in people's spaces. People are wanting to really give those hands-on demonstrations of their products and what they have to offer. So as you're walking through the ground, you're going to see a lot of things happening right there in exhibitors' spaces in their booths. We also have two new ride-and-drives. So um, we have, you know, our Agco Fent ride-and-drive. We have our Toyota ride-and-drive. Um, we have the Gus Automation that does their little demonstration, um, but we also have Can-Am and Bosun Motors doing a ride and drive this year. And we also have a lot of people doing drone displays, so going right up in their booth space and giving displays of their drones. So just a lot of movement on the ground this year, which we're really excited about. Well, very cool. A lot of interesting stuff to uh, learn about and uh, see demos of. And uh, it all gets going today, but not before the official opening ceremony. And so uh, what's that going to entail this year? So our opening ceremonies, we um, love that because we get to hear from our show chairman, tell us all about his year and the show and what he's looking forward to and what we have new going on. Um, you get to hear from other people, um, our CEO, Jerry Sinefs, but it's also just a great place to be for networking. So if you're looking for, you know, those VIPs you want to get in front of, you're looking to, you know, meet some of the top 10 winners, they'll get their awards there at the opening ceremonies. We also um, award two um, uh, high school seniors who receive the EM SARP scholarship award. So that gets handed out at opening ceremonies as well. But it's a great way to really kick off the show um, and hear from some great speakers. Yeah, and it, it really wouldn't be um, a farm show without the ceremonial cannon being launched to really kick things off. And um, after that, gates are open for people to come and enjoy. And it, it's a good experience for basically everyone. I mean, it, it's kind of all walks of life come out to this, right? It is. There's a little something for everyone. So, you know, there's great net networking for exhibitors or those in the agriculture field, um, but it, it is a family event too. So if you have family and you want to come out for some fun, come check it out. We have, like I said, demonstrations going on, but we also have over 90 educational seminars. So whether you're an exhibitor or coming on behalf of business or just someone who's looking to, you know, learn about more, a little bit more about certain things in the agriculture industry, we have those seminars going on. And we also have a World Ag Women Pavilion, which is really fun. We have lots of cooking demonstrations in there with local media as special guests. So that's a really fun pavilion if you just need to take a minute and kick your feet up um, or you're looking for just something a little bit different, definitely check it out in there. But there's lots to do and plenty to see. Um, if you haven't been to the show before or you have and you want to make sure that you're getting the most out of your experience, I highly recommend downloading the 2024 World Ag Expo mobile application. It is available for Apple and Android users, and you can actually go in there and plan your show. So check out our exhibitors, check out our wonderful food booths, um, and really get in there and plan your show so that you're making the most out of your time with us. 
Yeah, that app has been uh, exceptionally helpful for me kind of navigating the show because, I mean, this is uh, quite a bit of ground to cover. I mean, how many exhibitors are on deck this year? And I mean, how much space is being taken up for those that might not be familiar with the show? So we have over 1,250 exhibitors this year, um, and we our show takes up over 2.6 million square feet of exhibit space. So if you're not familiar, it is a very large show. Um, last year, we had over 100,000 attendees. We are on trend to expect around the same this year, even a little bit more than we experienced last year. Um, and the show theme this year is the best farm show on dirt. So you know, come out, check us out, and put your boots on if you've got any or your walking shoes because we've got a lot of exhibit space for you to cover. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. You are listening to the Agnet News Hour. Now, for more news, we go to Chuck Zimmerman once again. At CattleCon 2024, I'm visiting with Sigrid Johannes and First of all, tell us a little bit about what you do for NCBA. Thanks for having me, Chuck. So I am the Director of Government Affairs uh, in our D.C. office, and I cover wildlife issues as well as all of the different issues that pertain to federal lands grazing. So all of our producers in the West who are out on BLM and Forest Service uh, allotments, they're subject to all kinds of regulations like NEPA and the ESA, and we work on all of their their issues to continue to have grazing access to those lands. Yeah, you have your hands full with uh, some of these regulations. Uh, focus in on some of the specific ones that uh, you are working on, or and, and are you having success? How's it going? Absolutely. So this has been an extremely busy year on the regulatory front from the Biden administration. Last year, one of the key provisions that NCBA fought back against was the proposed BLM uh, Conservation and Landscape Health Rule. This is an idea that rolled out in April. Uh, Their comment period closed in July, uh, and that rule is now over at the White House um, for final review. But last summer, we mounted a grassroots response with more than 60 different livestock groups, many of whom are NCBA state affiliates as well as some of our other allies in the barnyard. Um, And we mounted a very aggressive uh, defense against this proposed rule. It has a lot of really harmful implications for federal lands grazers, um, a lot of provisions in there that would give a lot of power to third parties uh, to sort of impose new standards of what is or is not good conservation on federal lands. And obviously, whenever an opportunity like that opens up or whenever the agencies open an opportunity like that, we immediately get nervous because there are plenty of groups out there, including, uh, you know, more radical animal activist groups who don't want to see federal lands grazing continue. So we opposed that rule. We're going to be meeting with the White House next week to continue to make our case there. And then we expect to see final text on that rule sometime in February, maybe early March at the latest. Well, since we're in an election year, is there any anticipation that um, as you are working through these issues that things could change drastically here in in a, a new administration possibly? You know, that's always a possibility. I think anybody who tells you, you know, today in January that they know what's going to happen in November is is probably pulling your leg. I don't think any of us have an incredibly strong forecast of what's going to happen in that race. However, um, there are a lot of implications when administrations change. And one of the areas where we see that come to bear in a really dramatic way is ESA regulations or the Endangered Species Act. Um, Some of the rules that we are most directly affected by, for example, the 
the management of gray wolves um, have really become political footballs that change drastically from one administration to the next. And one thing that I think is very interesting is if you look at a Supreme Court case that they actually just recently heard arguments on, there's a case that they're considering right now that may overturn what's called the uh, Chevron deference or Chevron doctrine. And if that happened, we could see an environment where the court basically tells federal agencies you don't have as much latitude to direct policy and to to essentially legislate as they've exercised in recent years. It would really put a lot of that responsibility back where it belongs with Congress. So if we see a decision in that case, I think that will make it even more interesting, um, you know, how agencies like the Fish and Wildlife Service, like the Department uh, of the Interior, BLM and Forest Service have to respond and and really kind of live with more of their decisions rather than changing the rule book on producers every four years. What else would you like um, producers to know about the work you're doing uh, maybe we didn't touch on or you want to elaborate on? You know, I think it's just really encouraging every year when we get to come to convention and see, you know, thousands of producers from across the country, how strong our grassroots policy process is. I personally am the staffer who works on the Federal Lands Committee. We had two resolutions yesterday that passed after a little bit of debate and some amendments in the committee, and it's just really encouraging to see that. You've got policies passing in other committees this week as well, cattle health and well-being, for example. Um, Our process is alive and well. You know, folks get up and come to the mic and debate from every region, from every sector of the industry, cow-calf all the way up to feeders. Um, And so I think it's always really great to see that process working, and that gives us our marching orders for what to do in D.C. So we're getting a whole new set of instructions this week, and, and I'm thrilled about that. All right. Well, thank you very much, Sigrid, for taking the time to visit with me here. We're at CattleCon 2024. I'm Chuck Zimmerman reporting. For the first time since 2020, the number of Americans with a will has declined, with only 32% of Americans having an estate plan in 2024, a 6% decline from last year. Michael Clements shares more. Having an estate plan for farmers and ranchers is especially important as it protects the future of the operation. AARP Oklahoma State Director Sean Voskel says there are three things to consider. First, develop and maintain a succession plan for ownership and management of the farm. Next, consider planning for retirement plan accounts and life insurance needs of the farm as a closely held business. You should also consider premarital agreements and protection of interests in the farm. As a bonus, consider digital assets such as passwords and accounts that are critical to the farm operation. The main reasons people put off an estate plan is they either haven't got to it yet or think they don't have enough assets to leave to anyone. Neither is a great reason. Technology today means you can create a will online in less than an hour. And assets are only part of the story. A health care directive and a durable power of attorney are also important for your state plan. The right paperwork can save your loved one's headaches and heartache and give you peace of mind. Voskel adds there are a few changes in the tax code on the horizon to keep in mind as well. The first is the implementation of the Corporate Transparency Act, which will impose significant new reporting requirements on many small businesses. Second is the sunsetting of the increased estate and gift tax exemption amounts at the end of 2025. Unless Congress acts before January 1st, 2026, the estate and gift tax exemptions will revert to where they were in 2017. With inflation adjustments, this will be approximately $7 million for individuals and $14 million for married couples. Learn more Thursday night at 9 p.m. Central Time on RFD-TV or online at aarp.org forward slash aarp live. Michael Clements reporting. 
That's today's top agriculture news. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Brian German and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.